Do you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, hi, this is Dan Miller, and welcome into this edition of 48 Days Online Radio, where each week I scan through the amazing real-life questions submitted by people just like you. Scan through those and pull those that I think will have value for lots of us as we're on this path to success. For the most part, in terms of uh, workplace success, it involves a creative, innovative, kind of non-traditional, more entrepreneurial kind of ideas. Uh, that's a growing trend, obviously, and that's the kind of interest that most of you have. I discover that um, in our listeners and surveys that we do, a lot of you still have traditional jobs, and that's cool, but you still have the desire to be building something on your own. Those can go hand-in-hand hand for a very long time, and at some point, if you find that the uh, sideline opportunity is uh, generating more revenue than a real job, then it makes a transition pretty easy to do. Hey, we're going to be going through lots of questions today, all the way through to, can I be a dog groomer if I don't enjoy dogs? Well, you probably kind of uh, suspect what my answer is going to be on that, but I'll save it for some time during this podcast to get to that. A couple of things I just want to run by to uh, kind of get us started this week. I wrote a blog that I titled, Go Ahead, Astonish Me. And in that, I ask the question, you know, what is it that you do that is brilliant, amazing, excellent, remarkable, essential, extraordinary, outstanding, noteworthy, incredible, or astonishing? Now, astonishing is not a word that we use a whole lot these days, but it's a great word to kind of give you a mental image of what is it that when you do it, people just go, oh, my goodness. I mean, it would just take your breath away. I mean, I hope there is something like that. I mean, one of the notes I had in my blog was uh, somebody once asked comedian Steve Martin, how can I become as well-known as you are? And Steve Martin told him, be so good at what you do that people can't ignore you. I mean, I love that thought. Be so good at what you do that people can't ignore you. Now, see, there, there are really only three legs to extraordinary success. Number one, what are you deeply passionate about? Number two, how can you then do that with excellence? Again, perhaps better than anyone else in the world. Number three, what's your economic model? Knowing that, you know, that you are passionate about it, something that you can do it really well. I mean, if it's, if it's yo-yoing uh, or, or jumping on a pogo stick, yeah, then you have to figure out, okay, dude, you know, how am I going to make money doing this? I mean, that is a necessary part. There are three legs to the stool. Without any one of those legs, what are you passionate about? What can you do with excellence? What's your economic model? Without any one of those legs, your stool is going to tip over. There are a lot of people who have understood what they're passionate about, and they even know what it is they do well, but they've never created an economic model. And thus, the idea languishes. It, it doesn't allow them to do that in the biggest chunk of their time, and they end up frustrated by it and often even resentful of it. Well, just figure out if you want to jump in a pogo stick, maybe you need to uh, do trade shows. You know, I've got a, a friend who's a magician. He's a wonderful magician. His name is Lee Lentz. You can check him out. But uh, he was doing, you know, birthday parties and little freebies at churches and things like that. 
And then a few years ago, he discovered the power of doing product promotions, unveiling new products for corporations. He does major events at corporate trade shows and exhibitions. I mean, you know, he's the kind of guy that you know can make a, a new Lexus fall out of a hat. I mean, I don't know how he does the stuff he does, but he's a magician and he's used those skills in applying them in commercial applications where he has paid extremely well. I mean, Lee makes more in a day of doing a trade show than most people are going to make in a month of normal activity. So it, it, you don't, don't think that what you want to do is just necessarily unreasonable and impractical. Find creative ways to put legs on that. Well, the, the, the question, though, that sometimes come up, I mean, this week we had an event here. We had a Right to the Bank event here at the Sanctuary and had a, a lovely lady come up and tearfully took both my hands in hers and said, you have no idea how you've impacted my life. And she talked about having gone through the 48 Days book and then the 48 Days workbook and forcing herself to go through the questions in there. She said, the questions I ask, where I ask, you know, what is it that you do that are extraordinary? What is it that you do that makes you indispensable? What is it you do that astonishes people? She said, I thought those were arrogant questions to ask myself, to allow myself to ask those kind of questions. That's just arrogance. I was used to serving, to helping others. That's what I was doing with my life. But she said, forcing myself to go through that, it was almost like a volcano erupted in the way that she described what happened. She understood for the first time, golly, she does have things that do amaze people because she does them so remarkably well. She was in a tough position where her husband's health is failing and she really needed to go get a job. And in doing that, it allowed her to position herself to promote herself in these areas where she is just extremely excellent. She got a job within a one week period of time It's her absolute dream job. They love her. She loves them. And it would not have occurred had she not allowed herself to explore what is it that makes her so extraordinary. So the question is, is this arrogance or is it an artificial self-esteem or is it just a healthy confidence? I mean, of course, I believe that it really is. You know, it's arrogant to claim you can do something that really isn't true. I mean, that's arrogance. But if, you really do do something well and describe that, that is confidence. I mean, you can assert that you are extremely good at computer programming or at customer service or in selling uh, products to individuals. You know, whatever it happens to be, I mean, I hope you are doing something so well that you do believe you're excellent in doing that. If you don't believe it, it's not likely anybody else is going to believe it and you're going to find opportunities that are very mediocre, Well, we just hit 6,000 members in 48days.net. That was kind of a benchmark for me. You know, we started that out, just one of the Ning template sites to let people connect with each other, share ideas, ask questions. And I thought, well, if we can, you know, we started out, we promoted it to a few people and we had like 350 people pretty quickly on there. And I thought, "Ah, I'm going to see if this thing works, if it's something we really want to do or not. But in my mind, for some reason, I always thought, well, it was in looking around with some of the others that are out there, but I always thought if we could ever get to 6,000, that gives us kind of critical mass in a way. That gives us a lot of 
networking power where people can have a niche area of interest and yet have 30, 40 other people in the group that are going to be interested in the same thing. And I see that happening again and again and again. So anyway, I'm pretty tickled about that. We just hit 6,000 members in there. I'll probably take number, member number 6,000. As a matter of fact, I think what I'm going to do, member 6,000 said that she really wants to develop her skills as a writer. I think I'm going to give her free complimentary uh, attendance to participate in the September Right to the Bank event. I haven't decided that for sure. But uh, now that I've kind of said it, I need to go back and do that probably. But anyway, I can identify what member was number 6,000. And I'm going to give her a complimentary attendance at the Right to the Bank event. Anyway, just wanted to share that. I know a lot of you are members of 48days.net and you are actively involved there. And um, I'm delighted to have you as part of the 48 Days family in that way. And it's just something that I, I, it makes me feel good to know that people are connecting, people are building their business successfully because the brain power, the synergy that comes from a group that's on a common path. Let me go to the questions. Brian says, Dan, I read the article, You're Already Self-Employed. It totally made sense to me that 50% of the workforce is or will be self-employed in the near future. I mean, I talk about that a lot where I say that only 50% of the workforce is going to be employees. The rest are going to be all those other things. Now, we wouldn't even need to just call them self-employed, but we have in there contingency workers or contract workers, independent contractors, temps, entrepreneurs, electronic immigrants, all those things describe the new work models. Anyway, Brian continues, for the last two years, I've really admired this work model. I was laid off in 2009 for my full-time job. I was a technical writer for a home improvement company. I still have a desire to be a technical writer, but I would like to do it in a contractor or freelance capacity. Although I don't know how to get started. Can you give me some practical tips on how to get started freelancing or contracting my technical writing talent? Sure. In the Right to the Bank event that we just heard, we talked about writing textbooks, about writing content for websites and for magazines, newspapers, doing children's books, poetry, ghostwriting, a host of things that we covered there. And if you know that your expertise is being a technical writer in the home improvement area, look at the websites that are addressing that particular topic. Offer to write content for them. Start a blog on that particular area of expertise. You, what you want to do is you want to build an audience and a body of content that shows that you can write. Then it's pretty easy to contact companies. I mean, I, I have a whole lot of articles that I've written because of my newsletters and blogs. And because of that, because of keyword searches and all the things that happen out there, I have a constant flow of people that request my content for books, magazines, newspapers, other kind of articles, web articles, and then, of course, radio and TV interviews as well. I just got contacted by um, uh, the Martha Stewart Radio Network. They do a Friday program that deals with living the dream or something like that. And I'm going to be a guest on there. Now, that wasn't initiated on my part at all, but I have so much contact that those things are initiated all the time. And you can do the same, but... Don't stay behind the scenes and just try to make little sales calls to get those opportunities. Start to create your own content and just get it out there big time. And then you can nurture those relationships that will pay you for providing the writing that you're doing. 
Parker says, I read your comments. I read your comments about the changing work model. I immediately forwarded via email to each of my kids, all of whom are college age. Now, it's the same kind of content, apparently, the previous question referred to, where we're moving away from a traditional employee model into new descriptions of what work will be. And Parker says, then I thought, what about me? Does this apply to me? When I realized that my seven to five job is exactly the description of the shrinking work model, I was at first mortified. But I have to admit that after some further consideration, it looks liberating. Well, cool. I mean, I don't have a big axe to grind in terms of telling people where they ought to end up on the model of work models that we have. But I think it's foolish not to understand the new work models that we have. Now, that being said, that means if you decide you want to be an employee with a seven to five job, putting in 40 hours a week and getting a paycheck, that's perfectly fine. We're going to have that, golly, forever. But I think it's short-sighted not to at least recognize the other work models that we have out there. So you may understand Boy, your your options as a full-time CPA in a company means that you have a very narrow target of companies from which to choose or promote yourself. Only 2.6% of the companies in America have more than 99 employees, and it's not likely that one under that size, at least, would have a full-time accountant. So what that means is if you want to increase your options... You may decide you could provide your services for companies that are not that large, but you may only work one day a week for them. So these are subtle kind of changes that we're seeing. And it's healthy for you to understand the changes that are out there. Jeff says, Dana, I ordered your book 48 days, receiving your emails for a year and a half. I was laid off after almost 25 years of service last October. I received six months of severance and outplacement services. I looked weekly for a job, but found most jobs required more experience than I had in a particular area. Now, he's got some other details, but he says, the more I looked at it and thought about it, I didn't have the stomach to start a new corporate career. I've always wanted to run my own business, work closer to home, as I previously commuted two hours a day. Through my outplacement, I worked with two different franchise brokers, but ultimately selected a business services to small business franchise that I had found in my initial search. This seems to complement my previous experience and education. I've done all of my due diligence talking with other franchisee and I've submitted my application to become a franchisee. I go to a training in July and will be in business, which will initially run from my home by August. I'm excited and scared at the same time as I will trying to be made, try be trying to make up a six-figure salary and benefits. I realize it may take a year or two to make this up. Any other advice for me on beginning this new adventure? Jeff. Well, no, not at all. What you describe, you know, being out of work for an extended period of time, not being able to find another job after 25 years of loyalty and service creates a lot of what we call accidental entrepreneurs, where people say, you know what, I don't want to be vulnerable again with a corporate kind of position. I'm going to do something where I'm more in the driver's seat. When we look at the continuum of work models that include being a traditional employee and then being a consultant or being a contract employee, doing something more creative and entrepreneurial or being a sales rep for representing 10 different companies rather than just one. I mean, these are the kind of subtle gradations. And in there somewhere, we have being a franchisee. Now, what that means is 
you are not working for a company as a employee, but you're not a real raw entrepreneur where you just took an idea and developed it. A franchise implies that there's already a model, a proven prototype that's up and running, and so you're going to duplicate that. So we have things like Subway, you know, Wendy's, Service Pro, um, Santa Clean. I mean, there's, there's thousands and thousands of of franchises at this point. Here's my cautions in that. A lot of times people, after coming out of a corporate environment, get a franchise and six months later have the sense that they purchased a job for themselves because a franchise is still very regulated. Just by definition, franchises are very regulated. A franchise has to offer information in advance that tells people a whole lot of information about that company and opportunity that's regulated by the United States government. So there are a lot of things that have to be in there. A franchise, I mean, you can't open a McDonald's and then decide, Hey, you're going to front a few used cars out in a parking lot because you got built in traffic and it would add to your business. There's not a chance in the world. They won't allow you to do that. So they're heavily regulated as well. And a lot of people who purchased a franchise end up resenting the relationship they have with a franchisor, meaning the parent company. So just uh, watch for restrictions. I mean, I would consider a franchise to be maybe halfway in between having a traditional job and being a true entrepreneur. But watch for restrictions in your franchise agreement. You know, you, you have to, I mean, you, you pay for a franchise because they're going to give you the business model. They're going to teach you how to do this well, help you recognize who your target market is, help you market to that prospect base. But once all of those things are in place, then you still can continue paying monthly franchise fees, a royalty back to the parent company. And a lot of people, after they understand it's really your business, you have to do everything to make it work, end up presenting the continuing 8 to 10% typically of gross revenues going back to the franchisor. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I apologize. I'm choking a little bit. I'll be okay. And I'm still limping along with my computer equipment because my computer got fried with a lightning strike recently. And so I'm operating on less than full capacity in terms of pod producer and cutting out things and all that. Please bear with me. I apologize. Didn't know I'd be coughing today and I'll try to control it here. Now, the value of a franchise is in having an instantly recognizable name. And the incidentally, I hope to have my computer back this week so that uh, subsequent podcast will again be cleaned up and done in the way that uh, our buddy Cliff Ravenscraft has taught me to do. But I'm, I've got a real uh, piece together process right now. And I apologize about that. The value in having a franchise is having an instantly recognizable name and the ongoing marketing that they do to drive business to you. See, if they don't have a recognizable name, I mean, if we go out here and we're going to have uh, John and Dan's hamburgers, we got our work cut out for us. We know that with McDonald's on the marquee, we're going to have business the very first day we open. So if a franchise does not have a recognizable name, and if they're not doing a significant amount of marketing to help drive business to you, 
then it becomes a little more questionable what value they have. Now, again, franchises vary in pricing anywhere from, you know, $1,200 to a million dollars. So that's going to vary a lot. But those are the key things that you want to have from a franchise to really have value. Well, here's a question from Brad who says, Dan, I consider myself one of the lucky few and that I absolutely love my job. I work as a teacher's assistant in a special needs classroom. Every day I get to make a difference in a child's life and consider myself blessed to be allowed this. Also, as a school employee, I'm off whenever my own children are out of school and I get to spend more time with them as well. My problem is that teaching assistant doesn't pay very well. I'm a writer and I'm desperately seeking ways to write from home and supplement what I get from the school. I don't need to become rich from writing, although if Steven Spielberg offered to buy movie rights to one of my stories, I certainly wouldn't turn it down. But I need some way to add to what I get from school. Trying to find a better paying job is not an option. Working with these kids is where I'm supposed to be. I'm a divorced dad, and I'm blessed to have my kids with me 90% of the time. The only downside to that is I can't afford someone to sit with them so I can take a second job, which is why I'm trying to work from home. Do you have any suggestions, any ideas I may not be seeing? Well, Brad, again, having just come out of our Right to the Bank conference, I mean, I'm full of ideas about how you can leverage your writing to create income. I mean, I've had the privilege of doing that for many years now. Writing comes from, I mean, my writing income comes from many different ways. I mean, people have to have to understand, I mean, writing, the income that I get from book advances and book royalties is a very small portion of the writing that my, of the income that my writing generates. That's just one small area. I mean, I get paid to do articles. No, not much. And I typically don't look for that. What I look for is the byline that tells people where to go for more information. Those people go back to the 48 days websites and spend money there. So I really don't expect to be paid for the writing itself. I would encourage you to look for opportunities to do the same thing where you recognize your writing can be your business card, your marketing exposure, but you really need to have back-end products or services. So that may mean that you write about a particular topic. You write about, you, you say you work in a special needs classroom. So you may have some unique experience and knowledge about working with kids with ADHD or with autism. So you may want to do a teleseminar for parents of those kind of children. So that would be a leverage of your expertise that would go beyond just expecting to be paid for writing. Now, we, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, I'm doing a, a No More Mondays cruise in January in February of 2011. Well, that's an opportunity. I mean, those make a lot of money. There's no secret about that. Those generate a lot of money and it's around a particular theme. So if you had a theme for your writing and you could do the same thing now on that, trust me, the logistics are not that complicated. I mean, you don't lease out a cruise ship. I mean, all you do is just block out a certain number of rooms, uh, see if people will enroll to go with you. And if they do, it's a very profitable kind of thing and a fun way to talk about a particular topic uh, in, in a very relaxed, fun setting. We love the cruise process. You could do e-products where you put together little products rather than just a traditional 240-page, 72,000-word book. You could do audio products or instructional manuals. Again, I think these are probably things that would fit with you being a teacher of special needs children. Then, of course, books. You can have distribution agreements where you're a distributor for books and resources that also 
bring new information into the topic that you want to be known for. Well, it goes on and on. But yeah, you can do that as a teacher. Absolutely. Okay, here's a, here's a question from Mary Lou, who says, I'm unemployed, go figure, and have a desire stuck in my mind for the community. I've worked with refugees and done some research on them through my studies at the university. I attend Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. We, meaning the government, she says, bring refugees into this country all the time, and they are failing miserably. If we bring them here, shouldn't we train and prepare them to compete for jobs? I really don't see that happening, according to the stats I read about government and so on and so forth. Um, I really believe the government should provide assessment to these people. Okay, she goes on with that. Well, that's a kind of a, a position of personal belief on that. There are a lot of opinions on that, but let's just go with this to kind of get to Mary Lou's question. She says, I would love to develop some programs that would provide assessing and training so they know how to negotiate in their new surroundings. I want to incorporate businesses and churches. I want to st- Step the refugees through a series of orientations, learning the English language, culture understanding, proper government use of services, simple skills like answering the phone, typing computer skills, getting bank accounts, teaching proper money management, helping them deal with a tragedy in their lives through healing and to look at life from another perspective. If businesses can play a role and churches will answer the call to be part of this, we can eliminate some of the waste in government. This is a large undertaking, and I don't know how to get started, but I'm getting involved voluntarily with a nonprofit that links the community with refugees to help them in school and will take them places. How does this tie into a job or career where I can earn a living? Well, you're on the right track, Mary Lou. I mean, you really are to volunteer with an organization that is doing what you want to do. I mean, one of the basic principles about starting your own venture is to first learn on somebody else's nickel, so to speak. Volunteer with an organization or work for a company that's doing pretty much what it is you want to do. That's a great way to start. So you're not just starting cold with a blank slate. Now, you're seeing a lot of organizations that are, in fact, trying to do exactly what you're talking about. There are countless organizations, both government, state and private and church, that are trying to provide the services you're talking about. So you need to do what we call due diligence, D-U-E, due diligence, to learn what's already being done. I mean, that's exactly how you do that. I've talked a couple of times about Sweet CC's, a little place that sells yogurt that just opened up in Franklin. Well, they, I'm sure, were already very aware that we have a Baskin-Robbins a little independent Dairy Queen thing, and a Ben and Jerry's. So they're going to come into a small community. I mean, Franklin is not that large a town, a small community, and open yet another kind of ice cream yogurt place. Well, they did, but they have a real unique selling position. You make your own thing as you go through. It gives them an unbelievable uh, perceived value and they're absolutely knocking it out of the park. But you need to do the same thing with what you're talking about. Who else is doing all of this? How can you create? Remember what I said the three essential components for success are? When I opened this, we were talking about what is it that you do extremely well? Okay, what are you passionate about? What is it you do really well? And then the third leg of that stool is what's your economic model? How are you going to make that work? Now, there are a lot of ways you can approach what you want to do here. That sounds like a very you know, godly, humanitarian kind of thing to do, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a nonprofit. Now, can it be? Sure. I mean, I have a friend here in Nashville. His name is Jose Gonzalez, and he started uh, several years ago 
uh, Conexion Americanus. It's something like that, the name. But it's where he, being Hispanic himself, brought in people who were Hispanic here and taught them how to do business well. Now, they really miss, even though they, a lot of them have an amazingly strong work ethic, they do great work, they're very skilled in some of the crafts, but he'd have people, like a, there was a stonemason, a guy that did stonework, and he would hire other people to help him on these big contract jobs. He had been paid over $240,000 in the previous year that he received all in 1099 income. That means that as opposed to W-2 income, nobody had withheld any kind of taxes from that at all. He was an independent contractor. They paid him directly. He paid his guys. He never paid a penny of tax out of that because he didn't understand that he needed to. So on the one hand, he was extremely successful, but he put himself in an absolute disaster position because he didn't understand American laws about taxes. So it was just money coming in, money going out, and he thought he was doing really well. And actually what it ended up, he got a tax bill for over $80,000, and it was a very difficult thing to work out of. Well, Jose Gonzalez provides these programs to train people how to avoid those kind of things. He was not charging the individuals who were benefiting from that training, but he put together an organization and then got funding from like Bank of America, a dollar general who saw him working with a big pool of people who were um, a big pool of potential employees for them. Uh, I think he got funding from Columbia HCA, one of the local hospitals, same kind of thing. They saw that as being a viable resource for them to tie into where they could get good workers through that program. You could do the same kind of thing like that. I mean, you can look at the government programs that are already available out there and tap into some of the government funding that's available to do what you're talking about. You could get together a coalition of churches in a given town. So you have 50 churches and they all make a given contribution to that organization because they do feel like it's a worthwhile thing to be done. So it falls under their missions or benevolence or somehow they're uh, giving programs to do that. You could do that. Now, you could also, in teaching these people all these skills that you talk about, create microenterprises for them as they're going through your programs. So they're paid nominally for what they're doing. So they're learning, but they're also being paid almost like an internship program for that. So if you get a contract and you're going to produce um, 4,300 gift baskets for an upcoming Taco Bell managers convention coming to Nashville, you can employ those people to do that, get a contract to do that, where you're going to be paid $20 a piece for those baskets. The materials and labor cost you 10 and the other $10 funds the ongoing efforts of the organization. I mean, that's more like what we would call ethical capitalism or social entrepreneurship. I mean, that's a great description of what you want to do. So be creative about doing what it is you want to do. You know what you're passionate about. You know what you can do with excellence. So get creative about creating that economic model that is the third leg of the stool. And you have multiple ways that you can do that. Great question. Thanks for the question, Mary Lou. This comes from Angela, who says, is there a good way to make money being an amateur photographer? No. <laughs> Well, I need to expand on that a little bit. I mean, look at the, if you consider yourself an amateur photographer, chances are you'll never make money at it. You better position yourself as a professional 
photographer right out of the gate. Now, what does that mean? It may mean that you've got a little more, a little bit better equipment, a little bit more experience, and you have three packages for services that you offer. Just position yourself as a professional. When I talk so much about you know, what is it that you do with excellence? How to make yourself an expert? I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to make yourself an expert. I mean, I tell people if you read three books on the same topic, you're an expert in that field. Again, I don't want, I'm not diminishing long term academic training programs and degrees, certification, licensure, and all that, but it really doesn't require much to make yourself more knowledgeable in a particular area than anybody else is, or that at least the 98% of the people on the face of the earth are. You really can do that. So if you're going to be a photographer, don't be an amateur, be a professional because you only do sepia tone or you only do black and white or you, you specialize in people with their pets or you only do, you know, children between the ages of eight and 12. I mean, do something to position yourself as a professional because no, as an amateur, I mean, look at a wedding. I mean, we, we've just had a couple of weddings out here in our property. My gosh. You've got 40 people with digital cameras, 40 people who can take shots where they understand lighting and they know how to use Photoshop to go back in and make the things really look great. And they know how to superimpose writing on top of it to describe the scene that you're looking at. I mean, you've got to do something to separate yourself from everybody who considers themselves a photographer at this point if you're going to generate money in doing that. This comes from Matt. Matt says, I want to start an internet service business. Do you think it would be viable to create a smaller but more focused Elance type website exclusively for art and take a small fee for each commission generated sale? Now, he's got a a good question the way he lays it out here. Matt says, well, Elance itself has listings for artists. The jobs are inconveniently not sorted by specific art subjects, such as animation, landscapes, comics, portraits, and photography. Also, the lowest budget a person can give in a listing is $500 or less, which doesn't convey what people looking for a $20 sketch or $45 caricature really want. These factors make me think the field of selling art online might have a gap that needs to be filled. What would you say? Well, Matt, this is one of those where you can look at hundreds and hundreds and thousands of models out there where someone took the original concept and tried to tweak it to make it better. I mean, how many people have looked at what Amazon is doing? I mean, Amazon is a major, major player, major retailer. And if you want to be in the book arena, you better connect with Amazon because there's nothing close to the power that they wield at this point. Of course, they're uh, using that power to tell publishers what they are willing to price books at. They think anything electronic ought to be $9.99. I mean, there's some real battles going on because Amazon does wield a lot of power. Okay, with that then... There are a lot of people saying, well, they have too much power, they're too big, they're unwieldy, and there's an opportunity for somebody who just want books on theology books that are 200 years old. I mean, you could do books that only deal with pets. I mean, books that just deal with home improvement. You could make all kinds of niches and people say, well, I'm going to just be the one that operates in that space. Amazon has so much momentum it's extremely difficult 
to carve out anything from what they're doing at this point. Now, I'm one of these guys, I mean, I'm the half full, class half full kind of guy. I'm the optimist. I see opportunity everywhere. So I certainly don't say, well, gee, there's no opportunity there. Or if you see what Walmart is doing in a particular town, you can't compete because I think you can. I mean, as an example, there were a lot of small appliance dealers who were put out of business when Walmart came to town. But all of a sudden they realize Walmart is selling new appliances. They have no process for appliance repair. And there are tons of people getting new refrigerators, washers, dryers, dishwashers who have no connection for getting repairs or parts. And so they've carved out very profitable business for themselves in providing services that Walmart does not provide. So yes, I do believe that there's opportunity to do that. But I think you've, I think you've touched on something that has some pretty complicated logistics to make this work well. I mean, again, there are a lot of people who have looked at an original concept like Amazon and tried to make it better. But you look at things like Google and Yahoo and Hotmail and all the others that have fallen by the wayside that tried to compete with them and really were not successful. I mean, look at the things like MySpace and then Facebook and Ning. I mean, even there, as big as MySpace is, they are a distant second to what Facebook is doing because Facebook is broad, it's big, it's general, it doesn't have a clear focus, but boy, it's got the momentum of a steamroller at this point. I mean, I talked earlier about the fact that we just hit 6,000 members on 48days.net. That's built on a Ning platform. Maybe having 6,000 members puts us in a very tiny, tiny category because the vast majority of Ning sites have 20 or 30 people on them. So you separate yourself from the pack very quickly. It's like booksellers. I mean, if you have a book that sells 5,000 copies, well, you're already over the average, especially if it's a Christian book, you're already over the average, even though that number sounds small, you just put yourself into a small stratosphere because so few ever get to that momentum. And yet you're never going to make any money selling a book if you can only sell 5,000 copies. I mean, if you go through a traditional publisher, have a traditional royalty agreement, and if we say that you're going to get a dollar a book, well, that's going to give you 5000 bucks. That's not going to do a whole lot to change your financial future. That same kind of concept is my concern with your question here. Could you carve out something that is for artists where you just pay them $2 a piece or have some kind of model like that every time they get a commission. Yeah, you can, but I'm not sure you can get enough momentum to ever have that make sense. I mean, with that model, if you had a thousand of those connections a month, which would be monumental to get to that level, that would be $2,000 a month in income. Well, again, that's, it's tough to dedicate a whole lot of time to something that's only generating $2,000 a month. So I think the scale of what you're describing is pretty tough. Uh, the question then is, you know, can you survive a couple of years just promoting to artists to build your clientele of both artists and potential customers? I mean, I think you've got your work cut out for you to just build a model to get to where most everything is automated and you're still assured of getting your little fee each time. Uh, what you're describing is much like eBay and collecting a small fee for each transaction. So it's very much like that. But if you go back and kind of track the history of eBay, I mean, it took millions and millions and millions of dollars to get the ball rolling in that initially 
before there was enough activity to really start generating revenue back in. Most of the models like that require enormous resources to build a name to get the platform out there to build enough clientele before it can ever start to be profitable. I don't mean to start discouraging because I like what you're describing conceptually, but I just think it's very a very difficult model to actually make work. I don't know. Again, you know, you readers or your listeners are, are good about shooting me notes and you can always shoot your question or comment to ask Dan at 48days.com. And you're really good about shooting me notes to say, man, you really missed it on this one. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about uh, somebody who wanted to start an Internet site just promoting made in America only products. And I said, you know, that sounds wonderful. Everybody wants to be ecologically sound. Everybody wants to be green. Everybody wants to be patriotic. But it's one of those, you know, in as much as it sounds great, I think it's a lousy economic model. I mean, look at what companies like Nike have done. I mean, you, you, it's, it's hard to have tennis shoes when you are paying people $25 an hour for the labor as compared to $3 an hour in the Philippines or a dollar in India or Taiwan, I mean, the shoes would have to cost $500. Are people going to pay 500 bucks for a pair of tennis shoes just because they were made in America? Well, I don't think so. I mean, they're going to gravitate toward uh, the $100 shoe or $50 shoe because the labor to make it was gotten so inexpensively. But anyway, somebody came back and said, you know what, you really missed it on that because there are companies. Here's an example of a company that just has products that are made in America. Can I commend you on that? Uh, if you can make it work, fantastic. I mean, we've done a lot of that in the automotive industry. You know, people used to see bumper stickers, you know, I only buy American. Well, we know at this point, there are very, very few cars that really are just made in America. They may be assembled here. There may be some parts that are done here, but there are manufacturing production facilities all around the world that are producing parts for American cars. Doesn't matter what the name of the car is where the labor is so much cheaper than what they're ever going to get done in the United States. It's just a, it's a model that's really hard to make work. Now I'm not saying we just negate all our patriotism and go green and ecologically sound kind of ideas. I mean, I think we all all do our part to contribute to those things that'll make the world and leave it a better place than what we found it. Um, but again, on this particular issue, I just think it's a very tough economic model to make work. I'm always looking for applications, even to my own business. I mean, I love selling books, and we've leveraged that in lots of different things that we do. And I do come back to, you know, is this something I really believe in? Or am I compromising just, am I compromising what I really believe in ways that will just create more revenue? I hope I don't do that. I mean, there are things that I do to increase perceived value on products. We do things to encourage people to buy packages of products rather than just individual products. I mean, I love that kind of stuff. I love creative marketing, but I hope it ever doesn't ever come across as hypocritical or somehow phony in that I'm just hawking stuff where I really don't believe the end user gets the value that I'm describing. If I ever go in that area, 
feel free to smash my fingers in a car door or do something to get my attention where you're saying, you know what, you really went over the line in this. Now, I've done, you know, we we experiment with a lot of creative things, but I still want to be totally true to providing fair priced products that really bring value to people. I had people at the Right to the Bank conference that we just did who came up afterward and said, I feel like this wasn't fair. I mean, literally, I did. I had people say, I got so much out of this. I feel like you didn't charge enough. You know, I would have paid twice as much. Now, that's pretty cool. And of course, you know, the proof is in the pudding. If we double the price, we'll see what happens. But, you know, I had, I had a lot of people, more than just a few, say that exact thing with the way we fed them, the content we got them, we gave them, we introduced them to my senior editor at Brahman Holman Publishing, the, the publisher at Thomas Nelson, Matt Bauer. I mean, we gave them a lot of connections and a lot of value. Well, that's wonderful. That's delightful. And we're always looking for what's that magic balance between cost and the value that we really are delivering. But I would certainly rather people say that than to come up afterward and say, geez, man, you know, I paid 1500 bucks for this and I don't feel like I really got that much new information. That would break my heart to have people do that. So we certainly intend to give more value in anything, whether it's a live event or whether it's a product that we're promoting. Well, let's see. Let me grab one more here. Karen says, Dan, now this is the one, her subject title in the email says, is being a groomer the right path if I don't love dogs? Well, what do you think, listeners? Where do you think I'm going to go on this? Karen says, thanks for your ministry, your weekly podcast are a source of strength and inspiration to me and many. I emailed you previously regarding my lack in creativity and passion. You responded kindly on the air. Um, okay, I'm currently trying out being a bather at PetSmart, which leads to becoming a groomer. The schooling is paid for as long as you stay with the company for at least two years. Otherwise, you refund them 4000 bucks. My question is, I've been working over a week in this job now, and I don't feel a spark or a sense of excitement. I feel that there's an opportunity to at least learn a new skill to which I can fall back to on hard times in the future years. But I don't know if this is the right path or if this is even worth a gamble. I don't even like dogs licking me. I think they're cute in general as long as they're not trying to bite me or lick me, but I'm more of a cat or bird person. On the other hand, I wonder if I'm getting burned out from years of working with animals. Meanwhile, other friends have given me leads to office jobs with more traditional work hours and environment. Any advice is appreciated. Whoa, Karen. Yes. Have you listened at all to what I've been sharing for the last 20 years? Your lack of spark enthusiasm and your dislike of having a dog like you certainly raise enough red flags about pursuing training where you're then committed to two years of work grooming the stupid dogs. Don't do it. Golly, I can imagine just feeling like, well, here's a way to make money. Now, I could never in a hundred years force myself to do that. I'm not a pet person. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine forcing myself to do something with animals like that just to get a paycheck. Now, certainly a lot of people do enjoy that and do really well with that. And I'm, 
proud of them and happy for them. But you describe clearly that's not a passion of yours. No, I don't think there's enough merit in trying to make yourself a dog groomer to go through the training and then be forced to stay there for two years to avoid having to pay them for the training. And certainly to just create something that's a fallback on future hard times. I mean, none of us want to plan for future hard times by just having something we know we have the ability to do. I mean, in 48 days, I talk clearly about there are three things needed in work that you do. Number one, having the ability to do it. Number two, having the personality traits that line up with doing it. And number three, having the passion or dreams about doing that. Having the ability alone is not enough. I see a lot of attorneys and physicians who have proven their ability to do what they do and they hate their life. Don't do something just because you have the ability to do it. Nope. I would say run, put your own tail between your legs and get out of working on the dogs. You know, go do something else. I mean, life is too short to think that you have to just pursue that. I mean, find other things. You certainly you have other interests as well. Find those things, move into those in terms of what you invest your time doing. Okay. Hey, I'm going to end right there. That That is a great questions again, as usual. You know, submit your questions to askdan at 48days.com. I love going through them. I consider the opportunity to do this podcast one of the highlights of my own week. I never resent it. I never begrudge looking forward to it. I I look forward with great anticipation to the time of opening those emails, going through there and sorting through and then being able to talk through to do a little research, to bring you resources that can help you, perhaps the person who asked the question, but then a lot of other people as well. Because I know that success in one area is highly transferable. I love that. The fact that what you're doing successfully, if you have a dog grooming business, it's going to relate to somebody who has a, a lawn mowing business and vice versa. A lot of the principles are transferable. That's why we can entertain questions here about things that may not interest you specifically, but the principles are still applicable to what it is that you're doing. Well, Dan Miller, your friend on this path, this exciting path that we all have. Join us in 48days.com or 48days.net. Join us in one of the events we've got coming up here. We've got quite a few yet coming up yet this year. It's always a delight to meet you individually and know what your particular passion is. So enjoy this process as we together are finding not only meaningful work, but meaningful lives. Have a great week.